This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case books, torts, cases, and contexts, volumes one and two, by Eric E. Johnson. The case books are published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International. This means that the author has allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the author for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Torts Lectures. This is lecture number four, and in this lecture we'll be talking about the breach of the duty of care. So the next element in the negligence case is breach of the duty of care. Very roughly, this addresses whether the defendant was being careless. In this sense, the breach element is really at the heart of the negligence cause of action. The term negligence is used for two different concepts. One use of the word negligence is to denote a legal cause of action, a basis upon which one person can sue another. This is the sense in which we have been using the word up to now. The other use of the word negligence is as a synonym for carelessness. And in this sense, negligence is sometimes used to refer to the breach of the duty of care. In this sense, a person might say the defendant was negligent or the defendant's actions constituted negligence as a way of saying that the defendant breached his or her duty of care. More often than not, the noun negligence refers to the cause of action, while the adjective negligent refers to the breach element. But you cannot count on the noun-adjective distinction to tell the concepts apart, because they often go the other way as well. In reading cases, briefs, and other documents, you will need to learn to look past the word to the concept it represents. It may sound confusing now, but this is something that will soon come to you naturally, without conscious thought. To speak in very broad terms, the breach question essentially comes down to the question of whether the risk was reasonable. Certainly, there is much more the law has to say about the matter. But in terms of the basic idea, breach is defined by what can reasonably be expected of people living in society who do not wish to cause harm. Remember that each element in the negligence cause of action is essential to presenting a prima facie case. If a plaintiff can prove that a defendant owed the plaintiff a duty of care and undertook an action that actually and proximately caused an injury to the plaintiff's person or property, there can still be no recovery if there is no breach. Now moving to the reasonable person's standard of care. Much of the law comes down to the word reasonable. If a defendant owes a plaintiff a duty of care, 
then the default standard of care is what the reasonable person would do under the same circumstances. If the defendant is less careful than the reasonable person would be, then the duty of care has been breached. So, for example, if the defendant in a negligence case is alleged to have caused an accident by texting and driving 10 miles an hour over the speed limit while applying makeup, then the breach of duty question is, would the reasonable person have done that while driving along the freeway at that time under those circumstances? If not, then the duty of care has been breached. A classic statement invoking the reasonable person as the way of determining whether the duty of care has been breached comes from Baron Alderson in Blythe versus Birmingham Waterworks Company, stating, quote, Negligence is the omission to do something which a reasonable man guided upon those considerations which ordinarily regulate the conduct of human affairs would do, or doing something which a prudent and reasonable man would not do. The defendant might be liable for negligence if, unintentionally, they omitted to do that which a prudent and reasonable person would have done, or did that which a person taking reasonable care would not have done. End quote. It is important to understand that the reasonable person is not a real person. She or he does not actually exist. You can search the whole world and never find a reasonable person. Thus, at the trial of a negligence case, you can never put a reasonable person on the stand as an expert witness and ask what that person would have done. If such a thing could have been done, it would create the most sought-after expert witness in America. The reasonable person is not merely a person who is reasonable. In the real world, reasonable people are occasionally careless. But the reasonable person of negligence law is always careful, 24 hours a day, every day of her or his hypothetical life. It follows that the breach of duty question in a negligence case is not answered by asking whether the defendant is a reasonable person. The defendant is not the hypothetical reasonable person. And, since the defendant is a real person, the defendant could never aspire to be the reasonable person. The relevant question is whether the defendant was behaving as the reasonable person would have behaved at the moment of the occurrence being sued over. So a defendant might be a very careful driver, one who has driven for 40 years without ever having caused an accident or being ticketed for a moving violation. But that is irrelevant to the breach of duty question. All that matters is whether the defendant's conduct met the reasonable person's standard at the critical moment when the accident started to unfold. You may think that this is not fair to expect everyone to behave as the reasonable person at all times. Most people would agree with that. And negligence law does not imply that everyone should behave as the reasonable person at all times. The issue in negligence law is whether, given that someone has suffered an injury or property damage, 
it is more fair for the plaintiff or the defendant to bear the burden of the loss. The answer from negligence law is that it is more fair for the burden to fall on the defendant if the defendant's level of care fell below that of the hypothetical reasonable person. The reasonable person standard is an objective one. It requires evaluating the situation as if viewed from above. By contrast, a subjective standard would go to what a person's own thoughts were. If the reasonable person standard were a subjective standard, you could successfully defend a negligence lawsuit by convincing the jury that you genuinely thought you were being reasonable, that you were trying your best. Yet under the objective reasonable person standard, if your best isn't as good as the reasonable person, then your best isn't good enough. Now moving to accounting for differences among people. For the most part, the reasonable person standard does not make allowances for differences among defendants. But in general, the courts will take the physical characteristics of the defendant into account in applying the reasonable person standard, but not mental or cognitive limitations or disabilities. So, for example, if a defendant has impaired vision, impaired hearing, amputated limbs, or does not have the ability to walk, then these differences are tailored into the reasonable person standard. If a blind person runs into someone, causing an injury, the question is what a reasonable blind person would do under those circumstances. On the other hand, adjustments are generally not made for mental or cognitive differences. The hypothetical reasonable person is considered sane and cognitively normal. So if a person with Alzheimer's dementia were to become disoriented and knock someone over in a restaurant, the reasonable person standard would ask whether someone without Alzheimer's would have knocked someone over under the same circumstances. The rule of adjusting the standard for persons with physical differences, but not for persons with mental or cognitive limitations, has been criticized, and some jurisdictions have retreated from the rule. Differences in experience and knowledge are not taken into account in favor of the person accused of negligence. So, for instance, someone who has just learned to drive a car will be held to the same standard as the average experienced driver. On the other hand, if a person has superior skills or knowledge, then those increase the standard of care. So, if a champion NASCAR driver crashes into the plaintiff's car, the plaintiff is free to argue that the race car driver should have used his superior skills to avoid the crash. An exception to the reasonable person standard is made for children. The rule, as stated in Hardsaw versus Courtney, is, quote, the standard of care expected of a child is measured by that degree of care which would ordinarily be exercised by a child of like age, knowledge, judgment, and experience under like conditions and circumstances, end quote. Notice that the standard is not only lowered for children and calibrated by age, but allowances are also made for differences in knowledge, judgment, and experience. 
So this standard is quite unlike the unyielding objective standard for adults. The standard for children leans away from a purely objective standard, so much so that it arguably becomes quite subjective. In fact, one could say that the reasonable person standard is not just adjusted for children, but that it is thrown out entirely. Now moving to res ipsa loquitur, or sometimes referred to as res ips. The doctrine of res ips provides a special way for a plaintiff to prevail on the element of breach of the duty of due care. To understand how res ips works and why it is advantageous to some plaintiffs, it's first necessary to understand some context. Ordinarily, a negligence plaintiff must have a specific theory of negligence to take to the jury. That is to say, the plaintiff must prove a breach of the duty of care with specific evidence as to what happened, allowing the jury to conclude that the particular conduct was in breach of the duty of care. For instance, if the evidence shows that the plaintiff fell in the defendant's store and was injured as a result, no prima facie case for negligence has been made out. Why not? There is nothing in evidence that can provide a fair inference that any breach of the duty of care occurred. Perhaps the plaintiff fell because he slipped on something just dropped by a fellow customer. Perhaps the plaintiff fell because he was tripped by another customer. Perhaps the plaintiff tripped over his own feet. If, however, the plaintiff presents testimony from a store clerk that where the plaintiff fell, there was a pool of water on the floor owing to an unrepaired roof leak, then there is specific evidence of conduct constituting a breach of the duty of due care. While specific evidence of a breach of the duty of care is the norm in negligence law and is generally required, sometimes there is a lack of evidence as to how an accident happened. Yet, because of the circumstances, it may be obvious that there was negligence. In such a case, the doctrine of res ips allows a plaintiff to prevail in spite of a lack of specific evidence showing a breach of the duty of care. With the doctrine of res ips, the law is essentially saying that even when we don't know exactly what happened, it is nonetheless obvious that whatever it was, it was likely negligent. The two requirements for res ips are that the antecedent to the accident was one, likely negligent, that is, likely a breach of the duty of care, and two, likely the conduct of the defendant. These requirements are dictated by logic. If it is not likely negligence, or if it is not likely the defendant who caused the accident, then it cannot be said that the defendant likely breached the duty of care. Note that some courts are stricter. Instead of requiring the plaintiff merely to show that it was likely the defendant's conduct at issue, some courts require proof that the instrumentality of harm was in the defendant's exclusive control. Such a view is not the prevailing modern one. If the plaintiff successfully convinces the courts that res ips should be allowed in the case, 
then this usually means one of two things, depending on the jurisdiction. In some jurisdictions, the effect of res ips is that the jury is permitted, but not required, to draw an inference that the defendant breached the duty of care. Other jurisdictions hold that the effect of res ips is to establish the breach element of the negligence case in the plaintiff's favor, switching the burden to the defendant, who can then rebut the presumption of breach with specific evidence. This burden-shifting function of res ips is potentially important where specific facts are difficult for the plaintiff to discover. In modern American litigation, however, civil procedure rules allow very wide-ranging discovery. So with the kind of depositions and document requests that are allowed today, it might be quite easy to discover exactly what happened. When such discovery does not work to shed light on the matter, however, perhaps because of uncooperative or unavailable witnesses, then the burden-shifting function of res ips remains important as a way of making it the defendant's problem to find out what was going on at the defendant's place of business or arena of operation that caused the emergence of the means that did the plaintiff harm. An idiosyncratic aspect of the common law regards the standard of care expected of owners or occupiers of real property. When it comes to the liability for conditions of land and buildings, there are special rules that dictate the standard of care. These special rules only apply when the injury arises from a condition of real property. The phrase real property means land and anything built on the land, along with all fixtures. In property law, a fixture is something attached to the real property. So an installed ceiling lamp is a fixture, and thus part of the real property. While a floor lamp that can be unplugged and repositioned is chattel, meaning property that is not real property. The special rules apply to landowners and occupiers because one does not have to own the property outright to be liable for conditions on the property. Someone who is in possession of the property A lessee, for example, can be liable in the same way as an owner. The special rules apply only to conditions on the property. Note that activities on the property, as opposed to conditions, are not covered by the special rules. If an injury results because of something the landowner or occupier is doing on the land, then the standard of care is that of a reasonable person. But if the injury results from a condition of the property, such as a rotted staircase, then the special rules are engaged. The key to how the special rules work is that they require a different standard of care depending on the classification of the plaintiff, that is, the person who enters the land. The rules differ from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, so any restatement of them will be highly imperfect. But what follows is a fairly standard conception of the traditional rules, ordered from the lowest duty to the highest. Now, undiscovered, unanticipated trespassers. A person is a trespasser if she or he intentionally enters upon someone else's land without permission, express or implied, or some other privilege to do so. 
and if the landowner occupier has no reason to know of or anticipate the trespasser's presence on the land, then the trespasser is an undiscovered, unanticipated trespasser. Such a person is owed no duty. That is to say, there is no way the undiscovered, unanticipated trespasser can recover against a landowner occupier in a negligence action for an injury sustained because of a condition of the real property. Now moving to discovered or anticipated trespassers. A discovered or anticipated trespasser is a trespasser who is someone intentionally entering upon the land without privilege, who the landowner occupier either knows or expects to be on the land. If a landowner knows that people habitually cut across the property as a shortcut between two public places, then such people would be anticipated trespassers. Even if the owner-occupier has not witnessed trespassers in the past, if there is evidence on the property that a reasonable person would understand as indicating trespassers, such as a beaten path, then the owner-occupier will be considered to have constructive notice of the trespassers. Discovered or anticipated trespassers are owed a duty. In courts following the traditional approach, there is a duty to warn of or make safe any concealed artificial conditions which are capable of causing death or serious bodily injury. This is lower than the reasonable care standard in three key ways. One, only concealed or hidden dangers, traps, the courts sometimes say, trigger the duty. Two, the duty only applies to artificial conditions, not natural conditions. Three, the dangers must be very serious ones, such as those risking life or limb. A good example is an abandoned mine shaft. It's hidden. It's not a natural feature and it's potentially lethal. To obviate such liability, the owner-occupier can either remedy the condition or create an effective warning, such as with posted signs. Now moving to discovered, anticipated child trespassers. An extra duty is placed on an owner-occupier in certain circumstances when the known or knowable trespassers are children. This rule is often called the attractive nuisance doctrine. Where a landowner-occupier knows or should be aware of child trespassers, that owner-occupier has a duty to remediate a dangerous artificial condition on the land capable of causing death or serious bodily injury, so long as the condition can be remedied without imposing an unreasonable burden on the owner-occupier. The most important difference with regard to anticipated child trespassers, as opposed to their adult counterparts, is that the danger need not be concealed to trigger the duty. Another important difference is that predominant warning signs do not offer an easy way out of liability. These differences reflect the fact that children lack good judgment and are often drawn to obviously dangerous things. Originally, the attractive nuisance doctrine required, as its name suggests, that the child be induced to trespass through attraction to the dangerous condition itself, in order for the landowner-occupier's duty to be triggered. 
This is no longer generally the case. Although courts often still call the doctrine attractive nuisance, the danger need not attract the child in order for the landowner-occupier to have a duty. Now moving to licensees. The category of licensee is the default category of non-trespassers. Someone who is not trespassing is a licensee unless for some reason they qualify as an invitee. In general, people on private property with the consent of the owner-occupier are licensees. Licensees include visitors to private homes, such as friends and family. Ironically and confusingly, people who come to your home by way of a formal party invitation are not invitees. They are licensees. With regard to conditions on real property, an owner-occupier owes to licensees a duty to warn of or try reasonably to make safe concealed hazards that are known to the owner-occupier. This is different from the duty to discovered or anticipated trespassers in that to trigger a duty, the danger need not be artificial, nor does it need to constitute a threat of serious bodily injury or death. And finally, invitees. Invitees are people who are allowed to come on land to conduct business related to the owner-occupier's business or who are members of the public on land that is held open to the general public. Customers at the mall, visitors in a hospital, fans at a concert, and sunbathers in a park are all invitees. Some jurisdictions also consider public employees, such as police officers, firefighters, and mail carriers, to be invitees, even when in private homes, so long as they are privileged to be there. Invitees are owed the highest duty by landowners and occupiers. When it comes to conditions of real property, invitees are owed a duty to adequately warn of or render safe concealed hazards plus to make a diligent effort to inspect for unknown dangers. The key difference between licensees and invitees is that with invitees, there is a requirement to affirmatively go out and look for conditions that may be a hazard for the unwary. This makes sense if you consider that invitees are generally persons from whom the owner-occupier stands to make money. In cases where there is no money to be made, such as with public spaces like parks, there is at least a subtle cue that the space is one where visitors can feel entitled to be there, as opposed to a private locale where they should feel as if they are guests who are obliged to be a little more circumspect. And that brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.